You're listening to KUBU-FM, Low Power and the Voice of Sacramento. You can find KUBU locally at 96.5 on your FM dial or cable access channel 17 and 18. You can also listen in on the internet at accesssacramento.org. This program is Making Tracks, and I'm your host, Dale Steele. We're on weekly at this day and time. You can also find more information about what is covered on the show at daletracks.blogspot.com, and you can contact me there if you have questions or suggestions about the show. Making Tracks is back. And happy holidays. Today, on the last Making Tracks for 2018, we're going to find out more about tiny microplastic beads and fibers that are everywhere. And why is that a concern? And I've also got an update on monarch butterflies in our region. And finally, PG&E continues to cut down healthy trees and sensitive vegetation in the American River Parkway, as I've been reporting for the last month. They're doing this work without documenting the need or avoiding unnecessary impacts or working with the many groups and individuals who work hard to protect this unique place. A petition and media advisory are being circulated today by Trees for Sacramento and Save the American River Association, who are calling for the county to stop unnecessary impacts and require documentation, avoidance, and collaboration before allowing the remaining work to continue upstream as PG&E plans for the 26th and 27th of December. Sutter's Landing Park is a natural treasure in the heart of Sacramento. The Sacramento has set a high priority to expand Sutter's Landing Park and is now seeking grant funding to acquire more lands there. Meanwhile, nearby, the city plans to cut down many trees and sensitive habitat to extend the Two Rivers bike trail in spite of a better alternative that would avoid those impacts. The music today, Smallest Tree, by Roots Underground, and Optimistically, by local band Occupy the Trees. And now, head outside when you can. It's time for Making Tracks. Previously covered PG&E's proposed project to remove trees and other vegetation under their power lines in the American River Parkway at Discovery Park. The utility refused to provide information, including environmental surveys, permits, or document the number of trees to be removed. They also did not offer any mitigation. Well, in spite of requests for more information by local groups and elected officials, PG&E moved ahead with this project, which is now underway. Based on what is resulting, it's clear that they're treating the parkway as any other forested or open range in terms of fire risk in spite of not documenting that risk or any known fires impacting power line function in the parkway. This one-size-fits-all approach to vegetation management around electrical power lines is playing out around the state across hundreds or thousands of miles of corridors. I visited the site again over the weekend when there was no work underway and walked the alignment while taking additional photographs. It's clear now that there's not been any selective vegetation removal, but everything in a wide swath has been cut down and or scraped away. There are more mark trees that will likely be cut down, mostly across the trails on the slough side of the corridor. It looks like the work may be finished after several days of shutting down the paved bike trail to allow for the trees that they cut down to be hauled across it. The bike trail and multi-use trails will look very different the next time you travel them afterwards. 
Well, I made a few rough estimates. Depending on how many more Mark trees are cut, I would say that PG&E is at least 80% done with this project now. The shading over the slough has probably already been reduced by 60 to 100% with more exposure to sunlight and warming temperatures expected. Some of the stumps that I saw up close were close to four feet in diameter at the base with no obvious signs of being either dead, diseased, damaged, or dying as is called out in the regulations. Habitat losses nearly 100% within the power line corridor with the impact being roughly 50-50 between riparian and upland habitat. Local organizations continue to work on this issue, including finding ways to come up with measures to better protect parkway resources in the future. local nonprofit groups, Save the American River Association and Trees for Sacramento, have released a media advisory on December 24th and are hosting an event on December 26th. The purpose of that event is to draw attention to and halt PG&E's ongoing tree removal in the American River Parkway. Save the American River Association and Trees for Sacramento are calling on PG&E and the County of Sacramento to halt PG&E tree removals in the American River Parkway as part of vegetation clearance along and adjacent to its power line easements, PG&E has been removing many healthy, mature trees. To date, in the Discovery Park area, this has included a strip of about a mile long and at least 100 feet wide completely cleared. And now they're working upstream. This project is having a major detrimental impact on our parkway. The county should insist that PG&E produce evidence of compliance with California and Federal Endangered Species Acts, CEQA compliance, or stop the work now. The clear-cut operation is unprecedented and contrary to American River Parkway Plan and other state and county protections for the environment, said Stephen Green, president of Save the American River Association. Sarah has asked and PG&E has produced no environmental review, no consultation, or permits for undertaking this tree removal or disturbing protected plant and animal species. Our parkway is far too important to the community for the county to turn a blind eye to this scorched-earth approach to vegetation removal. The county is charged with the protection of our parkway and its fragile and rare riparian habitat. Other communities have been able to persuade PG&E to be reasonable in tree removal. Our county has not even tried to prevent the removal of trees that are no threat to power lines. Now, there are a number of photographs that have been taken since this work began in October and has now been completed along Bannon Slough and Discovery Park, and the area proposed for vegetation tree removal continues this week in the Cal Expo area. Research has shown that in other counties, PG&E has cooperated with county officials to comply with local and state regulation to protect the environment, a local attorney has stated for Save the American River Association. As far as we know, no tree removal permit has been issued by Sacramento County. PG&E will be working on December 26th and 27th to remove vegetation and trees at mile 8.5 on the American River Parkway. The power lines there are far above the treetops in the area and the trees are medium-sized. There's no possibility that a falling tree there will impact a power line or damage a tower at this location, as was observed by Jim Pachel, a Trees for Sacramento activist and retired attorney. Trees for Sacramento is particularly concerned that the County of Sacramento is not enforcing its tree ordinance protections for PG&E vegetation clearance project. A ground that has been cleared and disturbed is rapidly being colonized by noxious weeds, which is likely to happen wherever PG&E clears. There's no plan for restoration or mitigation included in this, and I might add that this work is being done 
and now under these rainy conditions we're having. So soil erosion is occurring and mud is being tracked around in the parkway and that's another part of the impact from this. underground. I want to share an article on the status of monarch butterflies in our region. This comes from the publication The Acorn, which is the newsletter from the American River Natural History Association provided to all members. And I really recommend that you support that organization and visit their facility and nature center at FEA on the American River. Here today and gone tomorrow. Will the monarch butterfly be returning to the Sacramento Valley for future seasons during its breeding cycle? Data from this year's observations of showing milkweed in the gardens around FEA Nature Center has everyone concerned, and we're not alone. From April through September, over 20 volunteers have been trained as citizen scientists to follow the University of Minnesota protocols to study milkweed at our site, looking for monarch eggs, larvae, and caterpillars forming in their chrysalises to complete their breeding cycle as emerging adult butterflies. This is our third year participating in the study at FEA, but the first year to have data over the full breeding season, averaging 786 plants assessed each month. Even with all those eyes dedicated to looking under every leaf, the findings have been disappointing. They found very few 
eggs and even fewer of the five stages of instars, or caterpillars, this year, while identifying many of their predators, including oleander aphids, jumping spiders, ladybug larvae, just to mention a few. They did see three developed chrysalises and brought one inside to watch the metamorphosis process, yielding a healthy adult female, which was released, released then to continue her journey. Well, monarchs visiting Sacramento in the spring most often do not stay with us, but move on to breed and lay eggs on milkweed all over the west, some as far north as Washington State or eastward into the Rockies. Monarchs we see towards the end of the summer may be on their way back from these farther regions, catching the last chance for breeding before going into diaphase, stopping their reproductive cycle, and preparing for migration to temperate zones along the California coast for overwintering on eucalyptus, cypress, and other evergreens. The Monarch Larva Monitoring Project tracks data from over 300 sites across the U.S. to better understand the declining populations of monarchs and to support what can be done through conservation efforts. Unfortunately, Monarchs have been declining nationwide over the past 20 years. Art Shapiro, professor of evolution and ecology at UC Davis, has been studying monarchs across the Central Valley for more than 30 years, and he states that he has not seen any eggs so far this year, which has him quite concerned. Have the California wildfires disrupted the monarch migration patterns? Has the temperature increase from climate impacted overwintering survival? Scientists across the world are watching, trying to define causes and influence changes that will protect our natural world, including that for Monarch. So we want to extend our thanks and appreciation for the many citizen science volunteers who helped at FEA conduct this study of milkweed. The plan is to continue the project next year and hopefully detect more monarchs into the future. All of us can support monarch survival by planting showy milkweed and other pollinator plants to attract and feed our monarch, as well as the overall planet conservation efforts that come from these local activities. And again, that's from the Acorn publication, winter issue for ARNA. You're listening to KUBU-FM, Low Power and the Voice of Sacramento. This program is Making Tracks, and I'm your host, Dale Steele. We're on weekly at this day and time. Happy Holidays! Today, on the last Making Tracks for 2018, we're going to find out more about tiny microplastic beads and fibers that are everywhere. And why is that a concern? Did you know that the West like most other parts of the planet, are awash in microscopic, tiny pollutants? Well, you will after this High Country News article that I want to share with you. Welcome to the Plasticine. This information is based on a Montana-based nonprofit called Adventure Scientists, which is an organization made up of kayakers, skiers, climbers, and other outdoor enthusiasts who gather environmental data from places too scattered, far-flung, or difficult for scientists to regularly reach. One of the biggest projects that they've been involved in, they're interested in microplastics, which are tiny pieces of smaller than five millimeters in diameter. Some have broken down from larger items, such as disintegrating tires, toys, plastic bags, etc. Others are shed from synthetic clothing or come from personal hygiene products, which can break down into microbeads. Some of these can be seen with the naked eye, but others are so small that they're nearly invisible and so light that they can float in currents of air. And they're found everywhere from the Arctic Sea to city drinking water. 
Well, adventure scientists began looking into this in, in 2015, and they've collected water samples from thousands of remote locations around the world. Ultimately, they found that microplastics were found in over 70% of their samples. And while that's startling, and while it's well documented that microplastics pose a, a threat, an ongoing and increasing threat to world oceans, there's been little, comparatively little research done on their impact in freshwater and inland environment. So adventure scientists began looking into this by hiking into remote areas, kayaking, backpacking, to get into remote watersheds far from urban centers. And one of the things that they were exploring was whether they could identify the presence of microplastics as well as how they got into the headwaters of some of these large, remote, nearly pristine watersheds. And their findings were startling. And I think one of the takeaways from this work is that someday in the future when scientists are digging through layers of rock and sediment, looking at the various geologic strata set down over time, that when they get to our era, they're going to find a colorful stripe of earth on top of plain rock and dirt from the pre-industrial era. Since plastics first became widespread in the mid-20th century, more than 9 billion tons have been manufactured, and most of this has been thrown away. Compounding the problem, once they're buried, scientists have no reason to believe that these small-sized bits and bobs of plastics will ever fully biodegrade. Instead of calling the current geological epoch the Anthropocene, or Age of Humans, scientists who study plastics sometimes refer to it as plasticine. The microplastic has been found in numerous other western water bodies, from high, small, alpine lakes and remote areas of wilderness to giant reservoirs such as Lake Mead. Well, this ongoing work from adventure scientists, microplastics were found in over 80% of tap water and over 90% of bottled water from around the globe, including in the United States. Such a large percentage of microplastics are found in freshwater. The bigger problem, they said, is plastic fibers. The plastic fibers break down from washing such things as polyester hats, fleece pullovers, polypropylene leggings, etc. So these synthetic fibers, long, thin strands of plastic spun into thread, much as wool is spun from yarn, and these fibers have, have more than doubled from 2000 to 2017. Over 50% of clothing is woven with them now, including many technical outdoor fabric. This means that every time residents throw their synthetic base fibers or fleece jackets into the wash after an outdoor recreation day, they're releasing microfibers into the city's water system. From there, this plastic-laced water travels down through wastewater treatment plants where it passes through a variety of filters and tanks before being discharged into rivers. And even when treatment plants are of some of the highest environmental standards in the United States, these small, tiny particles are still getting through because these systems aren't designed to pick up particulates as small as microplastic. Even the plastics that are captured by treatment plants often end up back in the environment as they settle out in the semi-solid residue or sludge that's produced by these plants, which is then repurposed into fertilizer or given to farmers. Other particles sink to river bottoms where they may be eaten by benthic invertebrates such as freshwater mussels. Others may bob along in the water column until they're gobbled up by fish or birds. Some studies, they found an average of over 20 particles in the guts of each of the birds or fish that they sampled off the coast of California. An environmental ecotoxicologist there found microplastics in over 25% of the fish and 33% of the shellfish caught locally and sold for human consumption. In both studies, the majority of fibers of particles detected were 
microfibers. The dining on contaminated fish and shellfish is just one way the humans ingest these plastics. Researchers have also found that microplastics show up in craft beer, honey, salt, and in over 80% of tap water and over 90% of bottled water across the globe, and that includes in the United States. The laboratory studies are just beginning to reveal how eating plastic could affect animal behavior and physiology. The results so far have been mixed. Some studies show no changes, while others demonstrate repercussions ranging from liver toxicity to tissue scarring to a reduced appetite, which could affect wild survival rate. These differing results may be due to the fact that there's a vast, vastly different types of chemical compounds lumped together as, quote, plastic. Microplastics is a name that covers a lot of different contaminants. There are different shapes, different sizes, different, different mixes of chemicals, but with microplastics, we're not even beginning to think that way yet. So some plastic scientists out there are actually optimistic that this is a, a solvable problem. It's getting a lot of attention. There's a lot of awareness now, and it's much more tackleable. It's possible to change the way we make and, and manage these materials. Environmental campaigns aimed at reducing plastic waste are encouraging. Some consumers are switching to steel straws, cloth shopping bags, washing machine filters that capture microfibers, and so on. But while some places such as California have banned plastic bags, other states, especially some of the western states like Idaho and Arizona, have recently passed legislation banning plastic bag ban, which means it's, it can be left to the individual cities to try to stop using plastic bags. Well, outdoor recreation industry may be responsible for only a fraction of the plastics entering into our watersheds, but as the number of mountain bikers, hikers, and anglers toting plastic into wild places grows, scientists and enthusiasts fear that this problem can only increase and the footprint of what's left behind is going to increase. Most of us depend on, on plastics to do the things that we do in our daily lives, and that includes recreation. Outdoor industries are often touted as finding solutions to some of the most extractive types of problems industry develops, and that's probably true, but without knowing the impact the outdoor industries having ecologically in issues like microplastics, it's really hard to compare any success that they may be having. First of all, we've got to quantify the impact of the problem, that's the first step towards finding mitigation and solutions. And we're still at that early stage right now, but the need to work on this is obviously growing. And again, that comes from the November 26th issue of High Country News. I encourage you to check out that publication when you can. to escape, a place to rethink what's real and what's fake. 
by local band Occupy the Trees. That's all today. And happy holidays! Don't forget to check out my other radio program on KUBU. The Climate Report focuses on local climate actions and more, sponsored by 350 Sacramento every Wednesday at noon. And be sure to tune in Tuesdays at 1 p.m. For Radio EcoShock, the latest on science, issues, and authors dealing with climate change and the environment on a global scale. Hosted and produced by Alex Smith. Don't miss it. You're listening to KUBU-FM, Low Power and Voice of Sacramento. You can find KUBU locally at 96.5 on your FM dial or cable access channel 17 and 18. You can also listen in on the internet at accesssacramento.org. This program is Making Tracks. Again, thank you for listening.